everyone. I'm Kennedy. And I'm Tara. We are Mamas with Trauma and Unpopular Opinions. We would like to provide a trigger warning as there will be mentions of trauma in many forms. We are not licensed therapists and cannot provide professional advice. However, we can relate and provide our own personal experiences and lessons that we have learned along the way. Welcome back, everybody. This is our 12th episode, I believe. We have a lovely guest joining me today as Tara is unavailable to record with me this this week as she is dealing with some pretty big life transitions. So in order to let her adapt to that, I have decided to go solo this week and I have a lovely friend with me. Her name is Tiana and I'll give her a second to introduce herself. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Tiana Fusco. Uh, I am uh, a therapist by trade. Uh, I have been working in the field of mental health and addiction for an alarmingly high number of years. It keeps going bigger, uh, which is a struggle. But uh, I think it's probably been about 15 now. And so I am from Nova Scotia. I live in Glasgow. I am a single mom to a feisty nine-year-old and have, yeah, experienced motherhood and, and childhood in a great number of different aspects and ways through my own personal experiences, uh, as well as the experiences that folks have shared with me. Well, thank you for joining me this evening. I know we've been we've been trying to arrange it for the last couple of weeks, but I'm really glad that I finally was able to snag you because I would like to mention that I was very adamant about my therapy journey continuing when I went into postpartum. And when I found out that my usual therapist was also going on maternity leave, I was scared that I was going to have to do a scramble to find someone willing to take me on, the handful that I am. <laughs> and this beautiful soul decided to to deal with me for a couple months and then some. But you are incredible and you really helped make a difference in those first few months. And I think that's worth mentioning. Thank you. Those first few months are they're really challenging. They very much are. And I would also like to add there were some emergency times that you <laughs> you made the time for me. So and I'm very gl- grateful to have you here. Yeah. So I have a list of questions to ask you. I want to pick your brain. I'm excited about I don't know what the questions are. I don't know what we're going to be chatting about, but we'll, uh, it'll be fine. (laughs) Yes. So I guess initially, if you want, like you can kind of share about your experience with pregnancy and postpartum, whatever you're comfortable sharing. You don't have to share anything, anything you're not comfortable. Uh, I tend to be a real open book. I feel like it's been Uno reverse. I feel like now I'm asking you the uncomfortable questions. <laughs> Absolutely. That's okay. It's really hard to be uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> my journey looks a little different than a lot of folks. Um, mm-hmm. I came to a place where I was 34. Um, I was single. I decided I wanted to have a family. And I actually decided that while I lived in Thailand and was studying over there. And I connected with someone who had just come from Africa and knew a family who the the mother of the, the fifth child had died postpartum. Um, and because of the other four children and the state in the Congo, they the, the little one had been in an orphanage ever since. Yeah. And so I went on a mad tear of getting my... Uh, assessment completed and going to the courses and getting my home study done and 
doing a thousand things. And I even I flew to Ottawa to go to all of the, the embassies and the Department of Foreign Affairs and get my translated documents certified and all kinds of stuff, only to get uh, an email uh, between Christmas and New Year's saying that because of things she's been fighting, she had been removed and had gone with Mr. USA, whatever that means. Uh, and so I was pretty shattered because that was my initial foray into I want to be a mom. After I took a a little bit of time in recovery uh, and been grieved that, I'd been writing back and forth with the family. I had pictures. I had, I was, I was putting together a baby book. It was, it was, I was doing the whole thing. I made the decision. I, I think because of how painful that experience was to do in detail. Um, and so I was 34, I was single, and so I made an appointment at the clinic. I bought some sperm, uh, which is a really interesting process if you ever want to talk about it, and uh, made a baby. Uh, wow. It was, it was intense. I was mm-hmm. on 21 different medications. I was giving myself injections, so working full time. I was jamming myself full of hormones. They induce hardcore menopause with this stuff. You have to snort up your nose five times a day to hijack the reproductive system from your brain so that then they can put in all of the other hormones to make all of the eggs develop. Anyway, it was a very, it was a very intense kind of process. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, wow. yeah, my first baby picture of Red, she's in a Petri dish. Wow. I would yeah. love to have you come on and talk about the process of that. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. that's well, incredible. And at that point, it's uh, it's it's nine years ago now, uh, and so it may have shifted and changed. But yeah, I would love to. Yeah, I would love to have you. That journey, <laughs> it was a little bit different. And then after that, I uh, I, I was pregnant uh, and proceeded through the whole pregnancy. It was it was intense. Um, there was a lot of stuff with the whole hijacking of the hormones and the they had to keep taking certain things for X many weeks after uh, and what that all looked like. And at the end, I, uh, <laughs> I was as big as a house. It's the funniest picture you will ever see. Um, I think I've seen it. Yes, I think you have. Yeah. And so I hired a doula because I embraced my inner hippie. Uh, and because I don't, I didn't have a partner. And so my mom was going to be there. Uh, my doula was going to be there, my best friend. And so no. the night arrived, I labored at home for as long as humanly possible. And my mother, God love her, having almost an anxiety attack on the couch. And she's like, okay, so like, when are we going to go? Like, is it <laughs> like, I'm getting a little concerned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we went to the hospital at like 5.30 in the morning uh, with seven centimeters. And Reg wow. was born like three hours later. And wow. And too. Oh, yeah. She was a big girl. She's a big girl. Yeah. And I just I marched through the whole thing. I had all these things in my, in my birth preferences. And they were all preferences. Because uh, as soon as you say the word plan, something goes wrong. Um, and so yeah. these are just kind of the things I'd like to do if I'm given the opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at the end, healthy mom, healthy baby, all is well. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, I was able to do the labor, and I took two Tylenol two hours after she was born, and managed to do it without the meds. And it was it was really good. I, it was actually a really powerful experience. Yeah, and I came out of it feeling very powerful. 
Uh, nobody, there was no doctor there to catch her when she came. Uh, the cord was wrapped around her neck twice. My doula intervened and convinced the nurses to remove it, even though they weren't supposed to touch it. Uh, and so mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, it was, it was really good. Wow. Yeah, I, I am very blessed in that. In that yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. You are incredible. She, oh, my God. She has been hell on wheels ever since. Uh, the yeah. day he was born, I had her, you know how you're in the bed and you have your legs up and the baby's in, on your legs. Um, she picked her head up and she turned and she looked at me and she just sat there looking at me. And I was like, okay, okay. Like, we're, we're going to get along. We're going to get along. Okay. Like, I don't feel like I can super break you. <laughs> yeah. Ridgewood. Really yeah. And those two days oh, in the hospital scared the pants off me. Yeah, I bet. Um, she wouldn't sleep. She cried, she cried, she cried, she cried, she cried, she cried, she cried. See, I can just keep talking about this for hours. Um, and so feel free to stop me at any point in time. No, I think so, that, I think that your experience is is helpful for listeners. I I think that I've been very lucky to have such a calm baby that it's it's probably nice for some of the listeners to hear that maybe that's not the case all the time. So no, I'm, I'd love to. I'd lo- well, I love it. It was just the hospital. Oh, I brought soothers in because again, nine two picking her head up day one. My kid has jaw muscles. And so she was gnawing on my breast, not even because she was hungry, just because that's what you do. They have the reflex. Uh, and so I yeah. got my mom to bring in the soothers that I got in advance. And this nurse comes in and she starts to get mad at, oh, this baby's going to get nipple confusion. So this baby is not confused about nipples. She loves them. Yeah. Like, full stop. <laughs> she is not confused. We are fine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but when we got home, everything was golden. She slept with me. We co-slept the whole time. Um, yeah. Because it just worked best for both of us. Yeah. I tried to do all the things they tell you to do. I had the stupid tub. Babies don't like the stupid tub. Get in the tub with your baby. It's fine. Because they have that comfort there. Uh, and yeah. that worked really well for us. Uh, and so yeah. she was fantastic after that. Yeah. Until call. But So how was your postpartum experience? I am incredibly blessed in the people that I have in my life and that I surround myself with. And my mother actually lives in the same the same house, but in a different like unit in the house. Um, and so she was right there um, and well at the time. And so she was able to provide a lot of support. It was really the one of the challenging pieces was being a single mom in my own. Uh, and so there was no adult conversation to be had. Uh, there was no mm-hmm. adult interaction unless I thought it. And so it was really easy for me to kind of get sucked into distancing myself and being a little bit more isolated. And then my, my mom and I started to do daily drives after Reg started to really struggle. Um, she started crying at 6 p.m. on a Thursday. <laughs> and then didn't really stop for a while and I remember my friends used to come by every Thursday and that is when it started and it was incessant Um, and so I remember them like awkwardly leaving and doing the whole like we don't know what to do we can't help I feel like you might need space do you need and so um 
after that, I discovered that she'd sleep in the car. Uh, and so my mom and I would go for two or three hour drives every day. And that mm-hmm. is one of my fondest memories uh, with my mom, who I've since lost. Uh, and I've never had the ability to just spend time with her like that. Um, yeah. And so that, that piece is actually really good for me. And yeah, there was a lot of positives. Yeah. I remember being sleep deprived. I remember walking down the hallway in the middle of my house, holding this crying baby, walking back and forth in the middle of the night, thinking, oh, my God, what if I drop her out a window? The hallway is in the middle of my house. There are no windows to outside. Uh, But it's just in that state of mind and that sleep deprivation and that that fear that, oh, my God, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something wrong. Um, Something is Mm -hmm. I, I remember that thought coming quite clearly. And then, of course, after a moment, I check it. And I'm like, there's not, there's no window. And not only yeah. that, like, have, have, uh, my brain just wasn't quite there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sleep deprivation is dangerous. And that's something that we've talked about on the podcast a lot. And I, I, I don't, I, I tried not to venture into the conversation about sleep. Because the last time I talked about sleep, I jinxed it. So, um. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I. I won't I won't delve too far into my experience with with it but but yeah it's dangerous I remember I remember um dealing with that too and like the intrusive thoughts almost of like what if I what if this happens what if that happens what if <laughs> you drop a baby out a window that doesn't make sense yeah like what what mm. Dro- drop yeah, a baby yeah. down the stairs that I've never be- that I that I never go near like what <laughs> yep absolutely um our our brain can be really tricksy um mm-hmm. Especially when it's so depressed. One of the one of the, the things I truly, truly embrace, like really deep in my soul, is sleep when the baby sleeps. And so we were taking like fourteen naps a day at certain points, and I would she in bed with me. Um, and the thing that really saved me was co-sleeping. Yeah. She would latch, she would feed, and she would be done and back to sleep, and I would kind of wake up. But not yeah. even all the way. That's another thing that we talked about when we talked about breastfeeding. It was like I, because I co-slept, uh, not necess- not not right off the hop. He was in the bassinet next to my bed. But I found mm-hmm. waking up in the night and like getting like physically getting out of bed, picking up the baby, holding the baby, and nursing him mm-hmm. and like soothing him. And then after he feeds for like twenty minutes, like putting him back in the crib or in the bassinet, like that was so like stimulating that's to me. Huge, like that's a huge wake up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only place that Reg would sleep for mm-hmm. weeks was right on my chest. Yeah. Um, and so I had heard all the, I'd heard all of the, the scary stories. I'd heard all the nightmares about co-sleeping and what can happen. Mm-hmm. And so I literally, I had her here. I had a stack of pillows on my left, a stack of pillows on my right, but I had my arms up on. Um, to create almost like a bassinet out of my body. Mm-hmm. And from the time I closed my eyes and fell asleep until the time I opened them, I did not move a muscle. I was I was sore from holding myself so rigidly until until she got to the place where like she's moving and like wiggling around and doing all of her mm-hmm. thing. And then it would it kind of extended to the size of my body. Yeah. No, I um I co-slept after six months, and then when it it quickly stopped working for us because my baby is 
a little bit of a menace, and uh, he liked to beat us up oh, in the night. In fact, filled with elbows and knees. That's what yeah. proving that the kid is. It's all elbows and knees. Yep. Yep. Hundred percent. Yep. So, um, yeah. So when once the sleep deprivation stopped, like when did you notice like a difference in your like your well being? It stopped fairly quickly for me um, because mm-hmm. I immediately adapted and was like, "Oh no, no! I am not doing dishes." I'm not folding laundry. I do not care. Uh, I yeah. am sleeping with this child. Yeah. And so we we kind of got into a bit more of a groove. And so mm-hmm. I count myself very, very lucky um, in that mm-hmm. it wasn't, it, it did not last a long time for me. And when she was pretty young, um, my mother started taking her one night a week. Um, and saying like you need to sleep, we will be fine. And so, of course, the first night, um, my mother's room is right below my room, and so I hear everything. And so I just lay there, completely awake, until probably yeah. two or three in the morning. Uh, when I go downstairs and I just get right and I come upstairs, and I'm like, no, I just we'll be fine. You just need to snuggle. Yeah. And so I think for me, a big turning point was making the decision to get up and go for a drive every day and have that engagement and interaction time with my mom uh, and to mm-hmm. make sure that I was, uh, I would go to my workplace where I was off on maternity leave to wander the halls um, and just pop into offices. It, just, just to kind of have that human interaction. And so it, I honestly was really lucky in that regard because my standards, my standards for a cleanly house were already fairly low. Um, and I could drop them. Bed yeah. is bed, clothes is clothes. Yeah, and so it, yeah. it was okay. Yeah, um, because I feel, and it's really, it's really cool to hear that that you didn't let any of that pressure get to you. And I feel like maybe too, given that you meant, like you mentioned, it would have been like nine years ago. I don't know how strong the presence of social media would have been then. Mm-hmm. as it like because it's so different now less so yep far less so like we didn't i i feel like i'm 90 i still don't have the tiktok i don't know <laughs> what why yeah. it's out, um and available and what kind of mm-hmm. influence um yeah. other mothers are uh, facing today that i wasn't mm-hmm. i came from a group of really hippie dippy moms we all cloth diapers I had a whole collection of like Star Wars diapers and Potter diapers. And so, it, yeah, it was really supportive of the way that I wanted to raise my kid. I wanted mm-hmm. to co sleep. Um, I wanted to cloth diaper. I wanted to breastfeed. I wanted to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. And then, Reg, God love her, little arsehole. I love her more than anything in the world. Um, quit oh, me. I know you do. And all of them quit me. She quit co-sleeping with me uh, at six months old. She would not sleep with me anymore. Um, she would be agitated and not rest and like irky and angry. Um, and mm-hmm. so one night I went and I laid her down in her crib because she'd had a room since before she was born. She just never used it. And she went <gasps> and went to sleep. Uh, and I, oh, right? Heartbreaking. 
heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I would have stopped. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so she let me get comfortable with that until she was about two and could climb out. Uh, and mm-hmm. then she came and took over my bed and was a terrible co-sleeper and beats me up to this day. We make pillow walls in the middle of my bed that were not allowed to cross so I could sleep. She potty trained herself before I was ready for it. I really liked my cloth diaper. Uh, and so she started doing that. She, uh, I knew it was coming to the end with the breastfeeding. I'd gone back to work and blah, blah, blah. We're still doing night time, doing this. But I knew she wasn't super into it. Yeah. And then at one point, I remember I had like, this this nighttime and I like presented my breast to her. Uh, and she looked at me and she poked my boob and pinched my nipple and laughed in my face. And that was it. <laughs> She was done. Uh, and so, yeah, she quit me on all three fronts, man. Oh, my God. That that mm-hmm. sounds very much like Rich. That sounds but... very much like Rich. Yep. 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 Very much like Rich. Oh, my God. So it sounds like you had quite the experience with a headstrong little girl. <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling myself because it just keeps graduating. Like, the older she gets, the, <laughs> okay, next level. Yeah. Um, and I keep yeah. telling myself. Uh, that I just kind of need to, to find a way for both of us to survive it uh, until she becomes an incredibly strong and independent and confident woman. Yeah, well, I think it's um, a testament to your parenting too. Yes, there are moments. We have moments. Uh, and I oh, think that it's important do. to acknowledge those too. Yeah, well, everyone has their moments. It doesn't define our parenting journey though. Absolutely. Mm. A lot of folks let it. Uh, or yeah. they, they berate or shame themselves about a situation or a moment or an action. And that is not the sum total. Yeah. Our parenting is far more than that. I agree. But yeah, you had quite the journey with Little Ridge. Um, how how was it navigating all of that stuff? By Like, tech, you were a single mom. Mm-hmm. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I figured. <laughs> I wonder where she gets it from. She definitely got it from her mama. Well, I love that I get to, I make all of the calls about what I am going to encourage um, and allow and where the boundaries are and um, what's okay and and not okay and the things that we value and our morals and, and talking about the planet and talking about you know society and about discrepancies and about you know people who who are struggling like I don't have to I sound very selfish I don't have to negotiate with another parent about anything mm-hmm. I picked her first name middle name and last name I choose the journey um that <laughs> well she has a lot of say yeah she does <laughs> Uh, but I set it up that way yeah, for her did. to have a lot of say. Uh, and so I guess I, I kind of chose that too. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah no, I, 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 here's a whole other thought there. Uh, have recently, well, recently, two years ago, um, decided to begin co-parenting with my best friend. And she has a daughter the same age. They have moved in. Um, they call us the moms. And they'll just yell mom and both of us will yell yes. And we have both committed to 
our family. Um, and so we have a relationship that is in all of the ways, traditional or stereotypical relationships, mm-hmm. um, other than intimacy. Well, no, that's true. Mm-hmm. Very intimate. I keep the door open. But mm-hmm. other than sexual. And mm-hmm. we are planning the rest of the girls' lives together. We plan retirement together. Um, and so we have a very differently shaped family. That is incredible. I have always said that if it's for whatever reason that things don't work out with Peter, that yeah. me and my best friend are going to live together and raise a baby. And that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's incredible Absolutely. to see that. I think that women coming together. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have so much power. Oh, my power. And mm-hmm. we have the power to to overcome and support and encourage and lift each other up to the highest heights. Mm-hmm. And we also have the power to destroy and tear each other down and be really hard and negative and mm-hmm. to create more struggle for each other. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's, it's a lot to do with who you choose to surround yourself with. But I'm very happy to be in a, a loving and supportive relationship with someone that I get to raise my kids with that never would have that never would have occurred to me outside of this situation. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that so I have a lot more questions for you. <laughs> so if you could offer any advice to some of the mothers who may be in the thick of it right now, what would you say to them? I would say don't take advice. I would say take a minute and breathe and step back for a second and listen listen to your intuition your intuition is going to tell you and your intuition can tell you anything it can tell you you might need some support right now mm-hmm. and so do that your intuition can tell you if they have no idea what they're talking about and they don't know your kid do what you feel like you need to do that is important i think that we are so weighed um, in our day-to-day actions by what we think other people want us to be or do. Oh, my God. Oh, keep the baby on a schedule. Don't keep the baby on a schedule. You should make sure that you breastfeed. Don't ever supplement. A fed baby is a healthy baby. You should never co-sleep. You should always co Like, there is no way that you are ever, ever, ever going to <laughs> win or get a green check mark. And mm-hmm. so just take a step back, observe the situation, and listen to that voice. Find that voice inside of you. It's there. Um, and if that voice is telling you you might need some help and support, then absolutely reach out for that because we all do something. Yeah. That kind of leads me into my next question, which is from Tara. I asked her to prepare something as well. She said that she wanted to ask if you have any advice for moms who might be wanting to start counseling but are scared. Oh, my goodness gracious, do it. It's nowhere near as scary as you think it is. I I think probably one of the the most favorite parts of what I do um, as a professional is meeting people. Simply because once <laughs> once you get to meet me, you see I'm not very intimidating, um, mm-hmm. and that the conversation flows. 
and it's not, you are not in a hot seat. You are not being judged. You're not being shamed. We're not going to delve right into the past and trigger all of the old things. You're not going to have to. You get to guide the process. They will meet you where you are. It is not, it's like having a friend that you know that you can go to that is going to be open with you and honest with you and hold hold that space for whatever you need it to be, um, but will also help to encourage you to reflect on where you're at and what you're doing and if things need to shift and change a little. And that's okay because there is no, there's no shame in that. There's no judgment in that. It's about living, being the best possible you. Uh, and being able to openly love and accept who you are and where you are and what you're doing and where you're at so that you can be the best possible mom. It's fantastic. I kind of think of it as an oil change for your brain. Every 5,000, just go and get a filter check. See what's going on. That's an incredible way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Therapists have therapists. It's absolutely not only okay, but super healthy. Yeah. So some of the other things that we wanted to talk about, the whole thing with our podcast is that we are mamas with trauma and unpopular opinions. Um, I wanted to ask if there are some ways you recommend coping with trauma while navigating postpartum depression and anxiety and for postpartum in general, I suppose, not just with trauma, but you know, with postpartum. One of the things that I recommend, um, is dear god take care of yourself first i know that the baby might be screaming and crying but like you haven't showered in six days and you just cook fries in your hair like you will feel so much better if you just take the baby Mm -hmm. in there put him in his little bouncy seat have a shower take 10 minutes for you so that you are rebuilding yourself you are you are reinvesting in yourself so that you have more continue to give. We lose sight of ourselves very quickly. Um, and the world loses sight of us uh, very quickly. Uh, when we're pregnant, it's all attempted belly rubs and ooh, and are you excited? And, and as soon as the baby is born, the, the focus shifts. Um, and of course mm-hmm. it does. Look at that little tiny thing. It's adorable. But... In order for us to <laughs> continue to be the, the pillar of the family, because I truly believe that moms are um, the vast majority of the time, and that's not to disparage dads um, or their roles within families, and I'm sure it can be different. You, you need to take care of the pillar, man. Like, it, it has to be a priority, um, because without that being at the center of the structure, everything crumbles. And you deserve to sleep when the baby sleeps. And you need to manage to feed yourself while you feed this little person. Uh, and you need to take that 20 minutes. And you should go for drive. Uh, with, for me, it was with my mom. It might be with your best friend. It might be all by your damn self. Yeah. Do whatever you need to do to fill your cup. And a really good way to figure out what that is, by the time we become moms, we have had a multitude of ups and downs um, in our lives, whether you're a young mom or an older mom. Um, and we have had times that we have felt low and we have had times that we felt high. 
um, but we have developed over those years all kinds of different coping skills and strategies to deal with those times. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I would always talk to my friends if I was upset or hurt when I was young. I would talk to my mom because that's one of my people. I would take a shower. I would go to the beach. The sound of the waves, I don't know why. I would eat healthier and attempt to be physically active. <laughs> Never mm-hmm. solid been my jam, but I always felt better when I did. Um, yeah. And so we have, we have this whole list of things. Um, that we know already helps to fill our cup. But it's almost like when when their baby is born, our cup disappears. We stop looking at it. We stop acknowledging it. We stop maintaining it. And so, of course, it brings them without conscious effort to take care of ourselves. It's really hard to keep functioning. Mm-hmm. If we do all of the uh, the old school tricks, um, the things we've always done that have always worked, and they're not working, try and come up with some new ones or talk to somebody. And they can come up with some new ones. Postpartum is a really, it can be a really challenging time. And we need support through that. Whether it's family, whether it's physician, whether it's psychiatrist, therapist, um, there are absolutely supports available. And no one, if somebody comes to me because they are struggling with postpartum, and they are having a really rough time feeling okay in themselves. <laughs> the furthest thing from my mind is that they are a failure, which is what a lot of people, it's about how strong they are for coming, how brave they are to acknowledge this is what's going on, what a fantastic mother they are for trying to sort this out, what we fear it is. It's the exact opposite. Uh, that was that was incredible. Well, pieces of advice to give to some moms who are really like in it right now. Um, and the system should it, be different, and we should have people checking in, and we should have programs where somebody stops by to be to hey, how you doing? Can I throw in a load of laundry? Do you want to go and take a nap? Go have a shower. I will entertain this itty bitty. Um, there are a lot of things that can be done systemically to support mothers uh, in families in a far better way uh, than we currently mm-hmm. do. But a lot of those are systemic issues. So yeah. figuring out how to try and develop that in a support system. Yeah, because, I mean, clearly the six-week checkup isn't helping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I went to a six-week checkup and... Um, the OB tried to make a play for my other embryos. How bizarre is that, right? That's um, insane. Yeah, because when I did in vitro, there were four embryos in total. One got put back, and so there were three in, like, cryo-freezing. The whole process is bizarre. Anyway, and so this this whole thing, the OB, like, from beginning to end, it was like, hmm, Abbott and Costello. Do you remember Abbott and Costello? Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. The whole conversation where neither person has any idea what the other one is talking about. Um, mm-hmm. When I was pregnant, like we convinced I was a lesbian, um, and that, like, it was, it was just all kinds of really weird things. Mm-hmm. I think because of the in vitro and whatever. Um, but he, when I went for my six week appointment, commended my weight loss number one because um, I had gained yep. sixty pounds with Reg. Um, I think. Mm-hmm. 
partially because of all the hormones and stuff initially. And I, at the six weeks, was like down 55, like something ridiculous. I was like, man, I freaking told you. Listen to me. Anyway. And he had mm-hmm. said, well, something about, you know, you have three embryos and a lot of couples in the world who would really like blah, blah. And I was just like, mm-hmm. what is happening right now? Like, it's still oh in gosh. the throes. Uh, yeah, yeah, of sleep deprivation and things being weird um, and not, I just gave birth. Like, I don't know what I'm doing with those yet. I don't know what that's going to look like. I might decide I'm done and one and done. And that's fantastic if I do. I might decide I'm going to go back for all three. Anyway, it was a very odd experience. Um, and I mm-hmm. and it really, looking back, it's one of the, the most off-putting things about the whole experience was that because I'd chosen to, to get pregnant in a different way, it was almost like they were a commodity. It was, it was very odd. Yeah, that is very odd. That is that is crazy, especially considering like postpartum is like mm-hmm. the most vulnerable state a woman can be in. Yeah, and now you want my frozen baby, right? Like, it just, it, it just doesn't make sense. That's very yeah. odd, yeah. Oh my God, that's wild. Another <laughs> question that I have is that is there any coping skills that you can recommend for moms that are dealing with trauma that has resurfaced in motherhood? Absolutely. It's really, really common uh, for trauma to resurface, not only during pregnancy, um, but also during birth. Also, as your kid grows through the ages and when you experience trauma for things to start um, come up. I, I really encourage people to use their the, the coping skills they kind of have already developed and have on board. If you are at a point that you feel like you aren't able to cope with those skills that you already have, I absolutely recommend going to talk to somebody simply because there is no one size fits all. Uh, and there isn't a single this is this is a coping skill that you should use. And that, that applies across the board. Um, everybody is so very individual. I can tell you that, you know, getting outside for 15 to 20 minutes a day, getting fresh air and sunshine uh, will improve your mood and decrease your anxiety. Uh, I can tell you that 20 minutes of any kind of cardiovascular activity, like going for a walk, is more effective than any antidepressants and any anti-anxiety medicine. Like, there, there are certain things that we know are helpful no matter what, um, but having someone to kind of tease those things out as you go through the process, I think is really valuable. But not only that, what an amazing time to start to deal with those problems. Mm-hmm. They've, they've lived in here. They, they've lived inside probably for decades, and now they're coming to the surface. And so instead of avoiding, ignoring, pushing to the side, why not go through the process of working through them so that they no longer have those ripples in your life, so that you can break that cycle uh, of intergenerational trauma? Because even if, oh, I will use myself as an example. Okay. So, and again, I'm a very open person. My mother struggles with mental health issues. She was bipolar. Um, and in order to cope with that, she drank. And so she was also an alcoholic. And so I grew up in a household where things were pretty chaotic. And I didn't 
have a lot of rules and never really necessarily felt super secure because I was really sure what was coming next. And so that's my historical stuff, which has actually led to a lot of really positive things in my life, oddly enough. But I have never had a role model for how to set appropriate limits with the kids um, and have appropriations and boundaries and to figure out how to enforce those and blah, blah, blah. And so intergenerational stuff, because it was just me and Ranch, there was never any need to really, I don't care where we I don't super care what movie we watch. And so I never really placed a lot of limitations or boundaries or rules upon her. There were expectations as far as, you know, kindness and, and earth and morals and all of that kind of stuff. But really never got used to the idea of, well, I said no. And, and, and that I get to set that limit. And just tonight she went to bed crying because I won't spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on sunglasses for her because I got them from her. And so I, I never, I wasn't parented in a way that had those limits. And so I didn't know how to parent in a way that had limits. And I always thought that, you know, negotiation and going back and forth and whatever was how, how it was supposed to be. But it's like the pendulum, right? Things all the way from completely permissive to completely rigid parenting. And the aim is to be somewhere in the middle. And I missed that middle straight up um, because, because I didn't know it. And so when we have these traumas, it's important to start to deal with them so we don't visit on our kids the same thing that were visited on us. Or the exact opposite, right? Um, sometimes people have experienced incredibly challenging things in their childhood. And so they it, say in the case of um, like some kind of, of physical abuse. So they've never, ever, ever abused their child, but they're also not capable of being open and emotional and connected. And so that intergenerational piece continues. It just looks completely different. And mm-hmm. so working on ourselves when those traumas come up is the most important gift we can give to our kids because it's one step closer to healing. And however far we heal, that's where they jump off and then they start healing from there. That is an incredibly profound way to look at it. I never would have thought about it that way. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Just like full disclosure. Like I, I struggle Mm -hmm. as well with, um, you know, the generational intergenerational trauma of, you know, mm-hmm. my, well, just my life in general, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I have been putting an immense amount of pressure on myself to, you know, break that generational curse and, you know, do for Peter what wasn't done for me or, you know, do for... My mother could never afford to buy me every, anything. And so I bought Reg everything. And now I'm hooked. I've swung mm-hmm. so far in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I, in my own experience, like I've placed so much value on being emotionally there for him and like um, overcompensating for, you know, for him. But he doesn't know any different. You know, he doesn't know the things that I've experienced. And some of the things that I've kind of been um, struggling in the last like couple of weeks is like, I put this immense pressure on myself because of ways that I was made to feel as a child. And Mm -hmm. 
uh, things maybe not made to feel, but like learned as a child because nothing that ever happened was intentional. But in turn, I, I did feel kind of emotionally neglected. And now I feel like this over, I feel like I'm constantly overcompensating to communicate my feelings and make sure like Peter knows like everything's okay. And, and being so emotionally available to baby Peter that, you know, he, and he, he, I, I, I know I'm breaking that, that cycle. I'm breaking the, the curse, as I mentioned, but, mm-hmm. but we want I put this in the middle. Mm-hmm. I think I have to, I think in my own case, I have to be able to show myself a little bit of grace, which is incredibly oh, hard. Grace. Like, look at you, look at where you are, look at all of the things that you have accomplished and just kind of take a deep breath and relax into it. You don't mm-hmm. have to push anything to be a good mom honey you're a good mom you don't have Thank to you. push anything right like there's I, I think that we are always striving for the next thing the next thing the next thing well if i just get the laundry done if i get the floors cleaned if i get this if i get that and the reality of it is that we have already accomplished the goal that we set for yeah because we show up for our kids the way that we kind of wish that our parents or our caregivers would have shown up for us yeah Absolutely. Every single day. And yeah, and it's it's been really hard for me to like I don't want to say accept it. I like I but I wish I could just let go of that pressure and just kind of mm-hmm. be okay with not like I don't know what 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 my issue is. I set such an unattainable standard for myself that it's like I said it's unattainable. Like I'm not going to be the perfect mom. Nope. There's Nobody so has. much to juggle. Never met a perfect person yet ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that there's a belief that by setting these crazy high standards that we're going to achieve more, uh, that we're going to continue to move forward towards them, that we're going to succeed more, we're going to whatever. And I would actually hypothesize the opposite. Yeah. Uh, I would suggest that by setting these crazy high standards, we are actually setting ourselves up for a constant state of anxiety and stress because the standards are impossible. Uh, we're setting ourselves up to always feel like we are not enough because uh, you can't get there. Uh, we are setting ourselves up to feel like no matter what we do, it's just not enough. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to, well, I mean, look at the way we raise our kids. Um, if Reg took her first three steps and fell over, I'm not going to say, what's the matter with you? How come you couldn't do 10? I'm going mm-hmm. to congratulate and celebrate the, the growth and the change and the positive because that's how humans learn that yeah. in a state of acceptance and understanding and support. And that's exactly what we deny ourselves. Mm-hmm. Instead uh-huh. of accepting and celebrating and supporting the, the strides that we make, even if that means I got out of bed today and brushed my teeth. If we celebrate and encourage the positive, we encourage growth. If mm-hmm. we set impossibly high standards and are constantly shaming and blaming ourselves for not meeting them, then we're encouraging bottoming it out. Yeah. Anxiety, depression, feelings of not enough, shame, guilt, all the nasty stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think too, one of the things that's common when you set these unattainable standards and, you know, set like that, that high, high level of perfectionism often comes with burnout. Oh my God. Well, because you keep, well, it's really funny, not funny, haha, but not even necessarily funny, ironic. Anyway, we set a few goals for ourselves and we 
anything that we've accomplished ceases to matter. How many goals have you set for yourself over the course of your life? Thousands. A lot, yeah. How many have you accomplished? Thousands. Yeah. Right? But that's not the focus. The focus is on, well, Jesus, I didn't get the laundry folded. Yeah. In the front of things, how much does that even matter? And so the impossible goal is about, yes, impossible goals, but it's also about completely dismissing and ignoring and discounting all of the steps we've taken so far. Yeah. And and giving ourselves the love and the congratulations and the support and encouragement that we should be getting for accomplishing all of that. And the same is true every day. Like we can look at it on a lifetime scale. We can look at it on a daily scale. Mm-hmm. We accomplish far more and we ignore it. We don't measure ourselves by that yardstick. We measure ourselves by the yardstick of what we haven't done yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find even myself, I'm so quick to be like, you know, I could do the laundry and the dishes and the cooking supper and the gro- grocery shopping and the meal planning and all of the stuff and the things. But then I'll dwell on like, oh, well, you know, I didn't organize my closet like I wanted to. <laughs> Uh, I have bags and bags and bags of clothes that Reg has outgrown in the last nine years, stored in a room. (laughs) Yeah, we all have the thing. And getting there, you're far more likely to get there with love and acceptance um, and support and encouragement of yourself than you are with shamey, blamey, finger-wagging towards yourself. So is there anything that you can recommend to, like... The people who maybe need to show themselves a little bit more love and acceptance and grace, as I mentioned. It, it sounds it sounds really simple. I would recommend taking five minutes a night and writing down five things you are grateful for, five things you are proud of yourself from that. Um, and initially, it starts with kind of do the thing. Ten o'clock, my alarm went off. Oh no, time to do the thing. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of search back through your day. Oh, yeah, no, sun was shining. I'm grateful for that. Uh, I got to hang out with someone, so I'm grateful for that. And so you kind of search backwards and pick through things um, to write down for the five things you're grateful for and the five things you're proud of. Um, But eventually what starts to happen is as you're going through your day, you start to go, oh, I'm grateful for this. I'll, I'll remember that. And so we start to recognize it in real time. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm proud of myself. For doing that i'll remember to write that down later um and then we start to in real time recognize the things that we are grateful for um the things that we are proud of the the accomplishments that we're making and it gets a lot it gets a lot harder to dismiss them uh when we're when we're putting focused attention on and making a point of focusing on those things yeah it, it's yeah, a really small thing but it can yeah. it can really start to shift your mindset because it it goes from remembering backwards to haha in the moment and then eventually you stop journaling altogether and in the moment you're just I'm grateful for this I'm proud of that mm-hmm. and if that's those awesome. things stop happening you go back to the journal yeah that's an incredible that's an incredible uh, skill and I think that I need to start utilizing that myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really am my harshest critic sometimes. Um, so one of the things that I have really struggled with is the feeling of, so this is like an all encompassing thing for me right now is like mm-hmm. the mental load of motherhood in general. Mm-hmm. And then the eventual burnout that comes with handling all of the, all of the stuff and the things mm-hmm. that come with like that, like I said, that mental load of 
of motherhood. So what in your, like, is there anything that you could recommend to utilize maybe as a coping skill? If I since I gave you such a personal, <laughs> I can, but you're not going to like it. Oh Lord. <laughs> it, it comes in the same vein as the other stuff we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Drop your standards, man. Yeah. Drop your standards. And I don't mean it in a, in a, a negative or a sarcastic classic way or I, I think that you hold yourself to such a high bar that even when you get to the bar you move it a little further yeah the flip side of it is this is going to sound awful but it's true uh, my standards are so low that if they go any lower I couldn't trip over them. like so low um and then anything that happens above and beyond that is a positive and a win and it feels yeah. uh, as long as everyone is fed, close, and there is a roof, it is a win. Yeah, I really, um, I really need to change my thinking about about um, all of that because I find my like my standards are set so high for what yeah. motherhood looks like, which which doesn't help because of like what's been modeled to me my whole life and the social media pressures and all of that. Yeah. You are the only mom that little man's ever going to have. And drop those standards. Um, You will be able to relax into it and enjoy it and not own other people's crap because of their stuff, not yours. So that you are amazing at engaging fully emotionally and being there for your little man. What would you say to him if he was holding off to him talking? <laughs> oh, that's okay. Uno reverse. I think I said that to my friend once that she had to talk to herself like she talked to her baby. But I think I would tell him that he didn't have to meet anyone's standards but his own and he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. To me, he to me he is perfect. Everything mm-hmm. he does is perfect. And I wish I, I, I kind of wish I could talk to myself that way. Well, and changing self-talk is challenging and it feels really weird mm-hmm. and awkward at first um, because we get used to speaking to ourselves in the way we do in our head. Mm-hmm. And it becomes, we do it so much, it becomes automatic. And so I'm going to geek out for one second. In our brains, there are millions and millions of neurons um, and they all fire and that's what creates thought and that's what creates movement in our bodies and emotions and feel like all of it. The more often a series of neurons fires, the stronger their connections become. And so initially when we have an initial thought and we connect, mm, a beaver tail looks like a waffle. There's a picture on my wall. Um, that's the first time those sets of neurons have ever gone together. But if I thought about it every day, like it goes from creating like your bushwhacking through the jungle. That's the path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually it's like a one person path. Uh, and then eventually you can walk two side by side. Eventually you can fit a four wheeler down there. Eventually it's a six lane highway. The more often we go through a thought process, the more automatic it becomes, which is why these really intense self thoughts that we have come on so strong and they play in the back of our minds when we're not even thinking about them and they carry on. And so when we go through this process of shifting how we're speaking to ourselves, it does feel weird and awkward and uncomfortable and wrong and like I'm lying to myself and whatever because I'm bushwhacked. Mm-hmm. I am breaking that cycle in my brain. If my my thought process before is I'm a failure, 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 then the first time I go, but I did a really good job at blah, it feels awkward and uncomfortable. But the more that I break that cycle 
And the more that I start to think those other thoughts, those pathways have the ability to grow and adapt. Neuroplasticity is our brain's ability to, to build new pathways and to, to build new ways of thinking. You weren't born over thinking things and setting these standards and, and impossible things to change. You were born a blank slate. Well, I don't know if I believe that. Mine was pretty stubborn from the beginning. Anyway, but <laughs> you weren't born with a negative self-talk. Um, mm-hmm. That was a learned thing. And the same way that you learned that, you can unlearn it. Mm-hmm. But it takes that repetitive challenging, which is why the journaling at night about things we uh, are grateful for um, and things we are proud of is really good because it's a, it's, a, it's a solid physical break. I have to take a minute. Mm-hmm. I have to do the thing. Okay, I, I am I'm interrupting that piece. I'm doing something different. Um, and then, hey, if you want to go back during the day and read over the things you wrote the night before, the last couple of nights, that's another break. You are teaching your brain to think in different ways. Yeah. That's incredible. I think I have to adopt that practice. <laughs> it's really good. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, what I need to do. So one of the things that that kind of came up in conversation was about setting boundaries and how you had to learn how to do that. So basically, my question is, have you well, have you learned how to set boundaries in a healthy way? And if so, what are like some ways you would recommend setting those boundaries. Like, I mean, I have oodles and oodles of examples if you need um, them. I have. I have chosen them. They, they, they were very, very hard to come by. I wasn't really given the option to have boundaries when I was young mm-hmm. just because of the chaos of the situation and my mom being unwell. Those kinds of things. And so this was definitely something that I, I learned. Uh, boundaries and assertiveness. I, I, I am still... If, if we have zero boundaries, zero assertiveness over here, uh, and we have, like, really rigid, really harsh, really whatever over here, I'm still far more towards the, the less so. Um, just because I, I really don't, I, it, it doesn't matter to me a lot. Uh, like, I don't mm-hmm. care really go for there. I don't care. Like, those things, like, in the day-to-day life, that doesn't super I don't get very reactive about when it comes to setting boundaries that are important to me. The most important thing um, for me personally is to, again, take a step back. I'm all about take a step back. Whenever we're feeling really activated, just kind of taking a step back and giving ourselves a second to breathe and to calm down and to look at the situation. And so I have, uh, a family member who struggles a great deal uh, with mental health and addiction issues and eh, coming up on homelessness, uh, all kinds. Mm-hmm. And there was a very long time where there would be regular asks for money and mm-hmm. this and for that, um, depending on the current state of mind. And they always came in the form of, uh, I'm going to get paid next Tuesday, I'll pay you back then, blah, blah, blah. And they, it's not that they never had any intent uh, to pay me back. It's just that because of what was going on for them with their mental health stuff, um, they'd already had spent the money 12 times um, before mm-hmm. they actually got it. And yeah. so I was at a place where I was starting to get really resentful and mm-hmm. hurt 
um, because I felt like, and, and it wasn't about the money. Um, it was about feeling like a commitment to me didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, my, my thoughts and my feelings and, and saying that you would do something for me didn't matter. That hurt my feelings. And so I stopped and I took a step back and I tried to figure out like, what is it? What is the most important thing for me in this situation? And it turned out, which is not what I would have suspected. Uh, it turned out that the most important thing for me in this situation was being able to maintain this relationship. And so if my end goal is to maintain an okay relationship in this situation, I had to rethink how I was approaching that. And so it came to a place where I had to make the decision that if, if I were to say yes to giving money or doing this or doing that, I had to internally give that or do that without any expectation mm-hmm. of it being returned. Um, regardless of the promises made, regardless of whatever, because then I didn't need to hold on to those feelings of hurting. And I had to set mm-hmm. that boundary. And I had to say no a lot more often um, because in order to save that relationship, in order to make it so that I could still have that person in my life in a positive way. Yeah. So I'm thinking too, like in the sense of like, I'm very, some would say overly protective of my baby um, or maybe don't necessarily agree with the decisions I make about my parenting. Um, But one of the things that I've been really adamant about, especially where he's so young, like um, I'm not comfortable with like people kissing him. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, like, especially not on his face, just because of like health reasons. Like, I'm, I ha- a lot of my anxiety for him is still centered around his health, and like, I don't want mm-hmm. to expose him to any more germs that he's already being exposed to. Like, especially like, or to like try to kiss him on the mouth, kiss him on the face, mm-hmm. like things for him right now. Like at his age, he's still really young. Like, I'm not completely like, I I know he's gonna get sick. Like, I'm not like, oh my god, if your baby's sick, don't come over here. Like, I'm comfortable like with his little friends coming over if they have a cold like I just don't want anything like that's gonna be like I find like for adults especially like I don't like I find it can affect him differently than it would affect me if it would affect it would like how it would affect Peter or like I just said any other like adult so one of the things that I have been really adamant on is that people don't kiss his face and I often feel like the bad guy when I set that boundary because it makes people uncomfortable because the generation before me is very quick to like want to like kiss his face and kiss his cheeks which like i get it they're they're very kissable but there's other ways to show affection Mm -hmm. um and i say it like very clear as day like please like do Mm -hmm. not kiss his face and i find i get some pushback on it Uh and that kind of leaves me feeling like disrespected Mm -hmm. and i don't Sometimes I don't know how to navigate those feelings. Like um, there's a really, there's a, a number, <laughs> there's a number of experiences that come to mind, but uh, without getting like too much into it, like I've had people argue with me, like that he needs to be exposed to germs and mm-hmm. all of that. And I'm like, okay, well, he's touching the floor, like trying to crawl, like he's touching things and putting his hands in his mouth. He's being exposed to plenty uh-huh. of germs. Like I'm asking you not to do something. Like I find now I get, I find I can get to a point now where I will simply just take my son because mm-hmm. it makes me uncomfortable. He's not like, and he's also not able to 
speak up for himself and say if it makes him uncomfortable, which I think like is a big deal for me too, because I remember being a kid and like being forced to hug my great uncle or like sit some on random so -so's lap or go give your uncle you've never met a hug or yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I feel like I'm very protective of his, his space and his like bodily autonomy almost. And I get a lot of pushback about the no kissing him thing. And I've almost bended. Like, I'm okay with people kissing, like, his head. But, like, I don't think there's any need to put your lips on my son's face if you're not, like, me or Peter, essentially. Mm -hmm. And, like I said, like, I don't know. Like, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, am I, am I being too aggressive? Like, am I being too, like, I, and I find, like, like I said, I just had, I've had some really uncomfortable experiences for everybody involved. And, like, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, am I really being a bad guy because I want to protect my son? I think that you're being a bad guy. Um, I think you put it really well when you talked about the generation. Uh, and I think that comes to boundaries whenever we have them. People are, are going to find them and poke around a little bit and test them. Um, that's really normal. However, the degree to which that goes to or what that looks like depends it depends on them and it depends on us. If there is a line that you are not comfortable with people crossing um, and you're being very open and vocal about it, then as his parent, that's the line. When it comes to people not adhering to the line, I would maybe take that a little bit less personally. Not in that you are incorrect or you should accept or you should whatever, but it's, it's not about them disrespecting you it's about they just don't get it I will never forget when no no uh my grandfather on my dad's side uh gave Reg her first espresso at three months old yeah oh my god oh my god <laughs> we and you want to come generations like he was born grown and married and had children in Italy. Um, barely spoke any English. Very old school in all of the ways. Brasso is like just the whole thing. Ah, Tiana, ah, the amount of you. Ah, it's in the woods. Tell me what do you want to make a photo of you. Like just very, very so old school. And in that case, um, personally, I went with whatever damage is done. I can't, I can't take the espresso back out of her body, but no more. Like, congratulations, mm -hmm. you got to be first. But that was never about him disrespecting me or my wishes. That was about him. A few different things, I think. On one hand, uh, I think he was trying to assert his old Italian man right, uh, which they feel like they have. I think that it was about when we try and shift and change some of those things, um, those that went before us almost feel shamed, guilted, um, judged, whatever, um, for the way they raised us, right? Um, like, what do you mean? I, I can't kiss the baby. You were kissed 62 times before you were a month old. Um, and that's not good enough for you. Yeah, but it, 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 it. Um, and so I think that their reactions is actually way less about you than it is about them mm -hmm. and, and how they're 
you know, when you feel like you're being judged or or something and you get that defensive posture. Like, mm-hmm. as soon as I come at you with this voice, your hackles come up immediately. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's just people with hackles out now. Doesn't have anything to do with you. Doesn't have anything mm-hmm. to do with respect for you. Doesn't. It's an it's an internal human reaction to feeling judged, and you do so, not intend to judge them. It is not you saying you shouldn't have this, you shouldn't have that with their parents, mm-hmm. but that's how we internalize that. Yeah. So say like so again in the in the example of people kissing mm-hmm. my baby so say i'm in mm-hmm. a situation i give my baby to someone please don't kiss them please don't kiss them on the face and they proceed mm-hmm. to do it how do like i i know for myself like i can't comfortably just leave that alone because mm-hmm. to me like i said to me it feels like a like a disrespect of my mm-hmm. parenting choices almost and yeah. I don't think it's right to to do that to a like I don't I just don't think it's I just don't think it's right to kiss a baby that doesn't belong to you. That's just I don't know if that's just a hot opinion that I have. But mm-hmm. um, so in the event someone kisses my baby, mm-hmm. and I read the boundary, mm-hmm. I'm like I noticed that you kissed him. I asked you not to. If if it happens again, I'm gonna take the baby. Is that mm-hmm. like a healthy, fair way to? Yeah, I think so. Um, you state the boundary. Um, you describe what's on this side of it and what's on that side of it. And then you describe what's going to happen. It's the same with all boundaries, right? Like, you know, I don't like it when you call me that name. Okay, mm-hmm. well, when you call me that name, this is what I'm going to do from now. Mm-hmm. And then you follow through with it. Um, that's how all boundaries work. We identify them. We let people know what the consequences are for overstepping them. Um, and then we follow through. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really funny one because people get so up in arms about it. Um, and since it's happened multiple times, get them a little cap embroidered, a little baseball cap. Don't kiss me. <laughs> My mom will kick your ass. Or, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and so mm-hmm. it, cause it kind of, it kind of makes it a little bit lighter. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't kind of have to feel like you're chasing at people, mm-hmm. but also reaffirms that that is the boundary. And again, I would go back and kind of do a little bit of reflecting on that feeling of being disrespected. Uh, I think that there's a huge assumption you're making in there um, about their mm-hmm. motivation, right? Yeah. And we can't ever read somebody else's motivation. But first off, full stop, we can't. Um, and secondly, I think that uh, the majority of it probably does come from those weird internal squigglies around shame and guilt. It's like, well, when I raised kids, they didn't need a seatbelt. Same deal, mm-hmm. right? It's like parents, oh, my God, the thing's with car seats. And, and strap oh, yeah. them in and what can go underneath it and what can't go underneath it and how the, the different ages and weights and heights and blah, blah, blah. And you people are all crazy now about car seats. I think a lot of that comes from the, the, the older generation feeling like they're being shamed or they were being 
what is the word I'm looking for? Starts with a D. I can't find it. It's kind of neglectful or not careful enough or whatever with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are not doing anything to make them feel that way. We're not saying anything to make them feel that way. They're looking at the process now and what we do and how we kind of handle those things. Um, mm-hmm. And internally reacting to it. There's nothing to do with us. I think too, um, I always like to pick on my mom, but I see a lot of it with my mom and like mm-hmm. the way that you're mentioning, like I feel like sometimes she takes some of the uh, things that I do. Mm-hmm. Like she, I felt in the beginning that she kind of was internalizing it in that same way that you're talking about of like, um, mm-hmm. oh, we don't do that. Like, I, oh, I'm doing baby led feeding. Well, I gave you puree and you're fine. Exactly that. Yep. And it's like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with puree. I'm not, or example, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with formula. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. No. I'm choosing to do it this way. So I think I one think of the things. as an insult. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think that it's being recognized how insulting it can be to not listen to parents, especially new parents. Yeah. yeah. And um, I find that's something that, I struggle with and Tara and I have had conversations at length about it Mm -hmm. because as mamas with trauma, we're both the oldest daughter and um, bear a lot of the responsibility and all of that. So I find for myself, I won't speak for Tara um, that I I've always kind of felt that I'm just a kid or like everyone knows better than me. So I think that, I think that might be a lot, a lot of the reason why, like when, when I'm not like my, my choices aren't necessarily respected maybe that's why I get so defensive about it. But it's also like, I have such a strong urge to protect him mm-hmm. that I think any, <laughs> anything that's not like immediate agreement is yeah. disrespect. Absolutely. And I think both of those things could be true. Mm-hmm. Right. We are really complex. Mm-hmm. As soon as we figured out how to think about thinking, Oh, poor you. Mm-hmm. It is really challenging. Um, and in raising our children, as well as in any other aspect of our lives, we are going to be challenged, um, and people are going to cross those boundaries, and we are going to run into situations that um, it, sometimes we will stand up because it's worth the standing up. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. we will not. All of those things are okay. Um, and when you figure out where your line is and how you how you want to enforce it and how you want to stand behind it, um, then that's what you mm-hmm. do. And so I think for me in the example that I use, my feelings of being um, with with my family member and the money stuff, I was getting really angry and feeling disrespected. Um, and I'm getting really resentful, um, and I was feeling mm-hmm. like I was being taken advantage of, and I was feeling like all kinds of really big things. Um, mm-hmm. And all of those feelings were valid, but that was me putting my interpretation of their actions onto the situation. <laughs> um, in reality, oh, I have a really hard time. I keep using they and them. Um, and trying mm-hmm. to not make it too very specific. Um, mm-hmm. They just weren't capable of thinking that 
through in the same way. And as soon as I made that realization that this has nothing to do with me and this is all them, I was able to just put it back on them. There was no more of that feeling of being disrespected. There was no more feeling of that, that anger or hurt or um, not feeling important. All of that kind of went away. Now, this is a bit of a different situation. And it's a really interesting one because Vicky and I, uh, my hetero life mate, I have been mm-hmm. working through all kinds of things because we have, we raise our kids pretty similarly, um, but there are, there are some differences in opinion. There are different ways that we approach things and stuff. And so there have been numerous situations in which the way that she dealt with Reg wouldn't be the way that I dealt with Reg. And we've had to have the conversation around I didn't like this response because of X, Y, and Z. And this is what I would have done. And this was my interpretation of things because we were able, we are able to have really difficult conversations. And so I think one of the first things we have to do is look at the relationship in which the the trespass is happening um, Mm -hmm. and figure out, can I have this conversation? Because straight up with a lot of people who can they're not capable of hearing it. They're not capable of listening. We're not capable of having an emotionally healthy discussion about how we're doing for all kinds of different reasons. And so if you're capable of having it, then you can move forward with that. If you're not, then you have to then figuring out the other ways to enforce those boundaries. Yeah. Right? And so with my other family member, I could not have that conversation because they just aren't capable of internalizing it and processing it and changing their behavior. And so I had to come up with a different way to enforce my band, which was, if I give it, I give it, no matter what the promises are. Um, because then my main goal of maintaining the relationship can still be met. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good way of looking at it too. Um, yeah, so we were talking about, after some technical difficult, technical difficulties, we were talking about healthy boundaries and how mm-hmm. not to internalize them and kind of um, not to understand people's reaction to your boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, how yeah. people react is on them. Your mm. boundaries are up to you. Um, people's reactions are on them. Yeah, that's a really incredible way to look at it. So one of the things that Tara wanted to ask was if you have any advice on what partners can do to help their partner with the trauma that they've kind of experienced in their life. I, I think that there are a lot. It, nobody is ever going to have had the same kind of experiences as you um, or have gone the same thing. In a lot of ways, um, we need to learn how to partner um, in relation to these things and the direction that kind of goes on. One of the things that I would suggest to partners our, uh, with some of these issues is to kind of embrace the idea of holding space. What holding space means uh, is that when someone brings to you or their struggle or just being to be there and kind of hold the floor for them to be able to, to say or do whatever it is that they need to say or do and to hold the space open for them. It's not about you. It's not about your thoughts or opinions on, on what they've experienced. 
going through now. It's just about holding that space. Another big thing um, that I would suggest, able to kind of gently ask the question in these moments to say, or are you looking for solutions? Uh, a lot of times when, when we bring something forward or a loved one brings something forward, uh, and they're obviously struggling and having a hard time, we, we jump into problem solving. Uh, we want to find a way to, to make it better and to stop the hurting and to, and, or to, you know, come up with 52 ideas of ways that, you know, they could help to make things better. Um, and that can be, it can shut the conversation down if that's not what someone is looking for. And so simply asking at the beginning what someone is looking for, oh, it clears the path for you um, mm-hmm. to be able to get what you need, but for your partner to be able to know what it is you need and to support without, hey, well, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Um, it kind of lets everybody off the hook. Because if you say I'm looking for solutions, then okay, let's work through some solutions together. Um, but if you say I'm just looking for support, then they know exactly why. Um, yeah. And so between holding space uh, and asking that, I think that a lot of become a lot more supportive. That's incredible. I think that's funny because, um, not funny, but um, I think... I have like me and my mom did some therapy last year. And one of the things that we had Mm -hmm. to utilize in our relationship is asking each other, do you want solutions or do you want me to just listen? Exactly. And for us, that helped us so much because Mm -hmm. um, my mom is a fix it person and I am a fix it person. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. like you said, I find that can be, I find that it can take away from, what Peter's saying in this example, but I sometimes find Peter to be the fix-it guy too. So he wants to be like, oh, well, if you do this, or if you do that, or if you do that, and, you know, and it it does it does the same thing. So I think it's a really good um, tool for people to kind of adopt and use in their personal mm-hmm. lives and their relationships because it makes the world of a difference sometimes. Well, my struggle is, and I am in a space that I just need support and mm-hmm. I'm dealing with an issue, comes at me with a sickness, mm-hmm. I almost get a little offended like I, and I shut down. How on earth do you think I haven't thought of that? Yeah. Of course I've tried that. I've tried that. I've tried that. I've tried that. Um, and I almost end up in this really weird like defensive place, which yeah. isn't where I intended to be because all I wanted was someone to pat me on the head and say, we're there. Can I give yeah. you a hug? Right, I'm going to show yeah. you all this basket full of stuff that I'm holding. I don't want you to do anything about it. I just want someone to acknowledge I'm holding it. Yeah, that's mm. awesome. Yeah. So one of the final things that I wanted to, one of the things that you mentioned about that, like, well, that was useful for you when you were kind of in the thick of it or, you know, struggling in your stage of postpartum was that you took the time mm-hmm to carve out time for engagement. And do you have any, um, any, any tips for someone who may be looking to carve out that time or mm-hmm. to take the steps to do that, basically? I can't even remember how I got involved with the Hippie Diddy Mom Group. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it was a bunch of women who had children all around the same ish age. Some had older children, um, some went on to have more. And it was so good because there was no expectations, but I could leave the house at any point in time and just land at a park and have adults to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finding finding a group of people who are in and around the same kind of state as you or age as you, um, kid-wise, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, to be able to have some connections with other folks is really, 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 really beneficial um, because yeah. not only do they understand and know where you're coming from in the day and age and time that you're coming from it, but it, it comes with far less expectations because everybody's on the same roller coaster. And it comes with far more encouragement and support because they understand where you're at. Yeah. And so I would absolutely encourage uh, that. I'm positive it was through Facebook somehow. But kind of looking to make those connections. Uh, and it can be over some I think it was I think it was cross bankers. Oh. Oddly enough. Um, and yeah. then it evolved into, oh, eventually we became a babysitting collective um, mm-hmm. and traded points. And so people could just come and drop their kids off at my place and they'd stay here for however long. And then I could get a certain number of points that I could spend with other people babysitting. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. And now it's mostly because kids are older, like, and after school park group, um, a lot of our kids are going to do rugby this summer. And so we can coordinate. Like, and so the group has kind of evolved and grown with our kids into whatever wow. that needed to be. Yeah. And yeah. then finding other mothers. Like there's, there's no other group that'll, that'll get it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. I, uh, I did a mom group through mommy connections in Cape Breton. And it was incredible to spend the time with moms who were like right in it with you. So Mm -hmm. I I definitely agree with that. And it's important to take the time to do that for yourself. Absolutely. It is. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how, well, and you might like join a, if you have the ability, like a, I don't know, baby and me yoga or I don't know, Whatever there is available, or mm-hmm. for leche, if you're breastfeeding, or whatever the case may be, to kind of to build some of those connections or bridges. Figuring out how to have as healthy as possible relationships uh, with family, so that you're more able to kind of access them for support. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever case that might look like, and it might mean limiting that based on what they're, they're able to do and not able to do or what you're able to do or not able to do. And that's very, that's very individual. Um, it yeah. depends a great deal on history and stuff. And so yeah, build a circle. Be conscious of your circle. Be conscious of the people you allow in your life. And it'll, it'll come together. It can take a minute. Yeah. We'll but, like, how did, uh, how did you meet? Your your co-host. She's my uh, she's my sister-in-law. Okay. So, so we um, so Tara is my well step step sister-in-law, but we're really close. Mm-hmm. 
and we were very fortunate to experience pregnancy, um, Mm -hmm. postpartum, and all of the stuff and the things kind of alongside one another. I had my baby Mm -hmm. in January. She had her baby in May. Mm -hmm. So our bond became pretty close after the birth of her daughter. And that's really what formed all of this for us. Mm -hmm. So it's been incredible to have her in my life. Oh my God, she's going to listen to this and she's going to, she's going to, she's going to tell me to shut up or stop or whatever variation of (laughs) don't be so cheesy. Oh my God. But like in doing this too, like I find that I have been able to regain like bits and parts of myself back. And it's really nice to have that sort the, her part of my circle and to do these things. Cause it's fun. To, it's, it's so cool to be able to, to have these like almost uncomfortable conversations that like nobody really wants to have. Mm-hmm. And it's so vulnerable, but that's also the beauty of it. Absolutely. And speaking of vulnerability, I, I do it all the time. There's an amazing, amazing woman named Brene Brown who talks a lot about vulnerability. Um, and she has a TED Talk um, that I mm-hmm. would absolutely recommend that shifted the way I thought about vulnerability completely. Mm-hmm. I've watched it dozens of times. I watch it every time I'm struggling with being vulnerable and have found it to be incredibly helpful no matter what it is I'm struggling. Yeah, I'll have to take a... Just as a general sort of... Mm-hmm. Addendum. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not, I don't think I have any more questions for you with all with that. Is there anything okay. that you want to say as your parting words of wisdom? <laughs> oh, I don't know about parting words of wisdom. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think it'll be your last I, time on here. I, I think that we are moving. We're moving through this journey where we are walking our own path. And as we do, um, instead of looking backwards and, and looking at the things that we didn't do or we should have missed or taking those learnings for what they are, they, they are what allows us to keep moving forward and grow. And so congratulate yourself, celebrate yourself um, and, and everything that you have done and how far that you have come so that you can continue to kind of bloom and move forward. Wow. You, I have to say, you are incredible. I am so grateful that you agreed to do this with me, and I'm very <laughs> grateful that you made that you made the late recording work, and that we that we pushed through oh, technical difficulties. And <laughs> technology is allergic to me. Give off the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Uh, I hope that uh, I hope there's some usable stuff in there. I don't know. It's Either way, it was great to chat. Yes, it was really great to chat, and it was really great to gain some of your insight on some of the things that I know that I myself have been struggling with, and I know that Tara has been dealing with similar things, and I'm sure there's other moms out there who are dealing with with similar things that we are as well. So I'm sure that there is more than enough. There's more than um, enough in there that people can take from so i'm i'm incredibly incredibly grateful that you did this that you made like i said the crazy <laughs> the crazy recording time work when i'm sure oh, you wanted to just snuggle awesome. up with your girl uh no she went to bed crying because i'm terribly mean um oh my as if she'll still land in my bed in the next couple hours it's fine yeah i'll get my pillow wall ready in advance <laughs> yeah i'm sure you are so i just want to oh. wrap up 
with a thank you. Um, I can't wait to have you back on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's it's my first time. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I'm so happy I got to be your first. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, me too. <laughs> Oh, so funny. Yes, this is incredible. And I don't know if you want, like, I know that I'm sure you have a a heavy caseload as it is, but if anyone's out there looking for someone, are they able to Mm -hmm. reach out to you? Uh, They can. Uh, I do have uh, a fairly dense kind of life at the moment, Mm -hmm. but I am always, um, I'm always willing to kind of help point people in the right direction to try and sort out what that can look like. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, I'm assuming most listeners will probably be in Nova Scotia, so this I think should be true regardless. Um, mm-hmm. That there are provincial lines for public services, uh, and mm-hmm. if anybody is looking to access private services on both the Psychology Today website uh, and the Nova Scotia College of Social Work website. They do have lists of private practitioners uh, in the areas that they are available in, as well as areas of expertise. I that isn't that's incredible. Thank you for that. I'm <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm. I hope that if anyone is making the very um, vulnerable choice to pursue mm-hmm. therapy, um, that they access those resources. And thank you again for everything. And I think that wraps up for this evening um so i'd just like to say thank you to all of our listeners and we i hope that you um are able to resonate with something that um was said in this episode we hope you'll stay tuned for next week and that's all for this episode of mamas with trauma and unpopular opinions thank you for listening find us here again next week at 6 p.m on apple music or spotify and be sure to be following our social media pages on Instagram at Moms with Trauma Podcast and on Facebook at Moms with Trauma and Unpopular Opinions. Mm-hmm.